This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton Section 6 Chapter 2 Early Works Part 2 Sordello, with all its load of learning and almost more oppressive load of beauty, has never had any very important influence even upon Browningites, and with the rest of the world the name has passed into a jest. The most truly remarkable thing about it was Browning's saying, in answer to all jibes and misconceptions, a saying which expresses better than anything else what genuine metal was in him. I blame no one, least of all myself, who did my best then and since. This is indeed a model for men of all letters who do not wish to retain only the letters and to lose the man. When next Browning spoke it was from a greater height and with a new voice. His visit to Asolo, his first love, as he said, among Italian cities, coincided with the stir and transformation in his spirit and the breaking up of that splendid palace of mirrors in which a man like Byron had lived and died. In 1841 Pippa Passes appeared, and with it the real Browning of the modern world. He had made the discovery, which Byron never made, but which almost every young man does at last make, the thrilling discovery that he is not Robinson Crusoe. Pippa Passes is the greatest poem ever written, with the exception of one or two by Walt Whitman, to express the sentiment of the pure love of humanity. The phrase has unfortunately a false and pedantic sound. The love of humanity is a thing supposed to be professed only by vulgar and officious philanthropists or by saints of a superhuman detachment and universality. As a matter of fact, love of humanity is the commonest and most natural of the feelings of a fresh nature, and almost every one has felt it alike capriciously upon him when looking at a crowded park or a room full of dancers. The love of those whom we do not know is quite as eternal a sentiment as the love of those whom we do know. In our friends the richness of life is proved to us by what we have gained. In the faces, in the street, the richness of life is proved to us by the hint of what we have lost. And this feeling for strange faces and strange lives, when it is felt keenly by a young man, almost always expresses itself in desire after a kind of vagabond beneficence a desire to go through the world-scattering goodness like capricious God. It is desired that mankind should hunt in vain for its best friend as it would hunt for a criminal, that he should be an anonymous saviour and unrecorded Christ. Browning, like everyone else, when awakened to the beauty and variety of men, dreamed of this arrogant self-effacement. He has written of himself, that he had long thought vaguely of a being passing through the world obscure and unnameable, but moulding the destinies of others to mightier and better issues. Then his almost faultless artistic instinct came in and suggested that this being, whom he dramatized as the work-girl Pippa, should be even unconscious of anything but her own happiness, and should sway men's lives with a lonely mirth. It was a bold and moving conception to show us these mature and tragic human groups, 
all at the supreme moment of eavesdropping upon the solitude of a child. And it was an even more precise instinct which made Browning make the errant benefactor a woman. A man's good work is affected by doing what he does, a woman's by being what she is. There is one other point about Pippa Passes which is worth a moment's attention. The great difficulty with regard to the understanding of Browning is the fact that to all appearance scarcely anyone can be induced to take him seriously as a literary artist. His adversaries consider his literary vagaries as disqualifications for every position among poets, and his admirers regard those vagaries with the affectionate indulgence of a circle of maiden ants towards a boy home for the holidays. Browning is supposed to do as he likes with form, because he had such a profound scheme of thought. But as a matter of fact, though few of his followers will take Browning's literary form seriously, he took his own literary form very seriously. Now Pippa Passes is, among other things, eminently remarkable as a very original artistic form, a series of disconnected but dramatic scenes which have only in common the appearance of one figure. For this admirable literary departure, Browning, amid all the laudations of his mind and his message, has scarcely ever had credit. And just as we should, if we took Browning seriously as a poet, see that he had made many noble literary forms, so we should also see that he did make from time to time certain definite literary mistakes. There is one of them, a glaring one, in Pippa Passes, and as far as I know, no critic has ever thought enough of Browning as an artist to point it out. It is a gross falsification of the whole beauty of Pippa Passes to make the Monsignor and his accomplice in the last act discuss a plan touching the fate of Pippa herself. The whole central and splendid idea of the drama is the fact that Pippa is utterly remote from the grand folk whose lives she troubles and transforms. To make her in the end turn out to be the niece of one of them is like a whiff from an Adelphi melodrama, an excellent thing in its place, but destructive of the entire conception of Pippa. Having done that, Browning might just as well have made Sebald turn out to be her long-lost brother and Luigi a husband to whom she was secretly married. Browning made this mistake when his own splendid artistic power was only growing, and its merits and its faults in a tangle. But its real literary merits and its real literary faults have alike remained unrecognized under the influence of that unfortunate intellectualism which idolizes Browning as a metaphysician and neglects him as a poet. But a better test was coming. Browning's poetry, in the most strictly poetical sense, reached its flower in Dramatic Lyrics, published in 1842. Here he showed himself a picturesque and poignant artist in a wholly original manner, and the two main characteristics of the work were the two characteristics most commonly denied to Browning, both by his opponents and by his followers. Passion and beauty. But beauty had enlarged her boundaries in new modes of dramatic arrangement, and passion had found new voices in fantastic and realistic verse. Those who suppose Browning to be a wholly philosophic poet number a great majority of his commentators. But when we come to look at the actual facts, they are strangely and almost unexpectedly otherwise. 
Let anyone who believes in the arrogantly intellectual character of Browning's poetry run through the actual repertoire of the dramatic lyrics. The first item consists of those splendid war chants called Cavalier Tunes. I do not imagine that anyone will maintain that there is any very mysterious metaphysical aim in them. The second item is the fine poem, The Lost Leader, a poem which expresses in perfectly lucid and lyrical verse a perfectly normal and old-fashioned indignation. It is the same, however far we carry the query. What theory does the next poem, How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to Axe, express, except the daring speculation that it is often exciting to ride a good horse in Belgium? What theory does the poem after that, through the Metija to Abed el Kedar, express, except that it is also frequently exciting to ride a good horse in Africa? Then comes Nationality in Drinks, a mere technical oddity without a gleam of philosophy, and after that those two entirely exquisite garden fancies, the first of which is devoted to the abstruse thesis that a woman may be charming, and the second to the equally abstruse thesis that a book may be a bore. Then comes the soliloquy of the Spanish cloister, from which the most ingenious Browning student cannot extract anything, except that people sometimes hate each other in Spain. And then the laboratory, from which he could extract nothing, except that people sometimes hate each other in France. This is a perfectly honest record of the poems as they stand. And the first eleven poems, read straight off, are remarkable for these two obvious characteristics. First, they contain not even a suggestion of anything that could be called philosophy, and second, that they contain a considerable proportion of the best and most typical poems that Browning ever wrote. It may be repeated that either he wrote these lyrics because he had an artistic sense, or it is impossible to hazard even the wildest guess as to why he wrote them. It is permissible to say that the dramatic lyrics represent the arrival of the real Browning of literary history. It is true that he had written already many admirable poems of a far more ambitious plan. Paracelsus, with its splendid version of the faults of the intellectual. Pippa Passes, with its beautiful deification of unconscious influence. But youth is always ambitious and universal. Mature works exhibit more of individuality more of the special type and color of work which a man is destined to do. Youth is universal, but not individual. The genius who begins life with a very genuine and sincere doubt whether he is meant to be an exquisite and idolized violinist, or the most powerful and eloquent prime minister of modern times, does at last end by making the discovery that there is, after all, one thing, possibly a certain style of illustrating nursery rhymes, which he can really do better, than anyone else. This was what happened to Browning. Like everyone else, he had to discover first the universe, and then humanity, and at last himself. With him, as with all others, the great paradox and the great definition of life was this, that the ambition narrows as the mind expands. In dramatic lyrics, he discovered the one thing that he could really do better than anyone else, the dramatic lyric. The form is absolutely original. He had discovered a new field of poetry, and in the center of that field he had found himself. The actual quality 
the actual originality of the form is a little difficult to describe but its general characteristic is the fearless and most dexterous use of grotesque things in order to express sublime emotions the best and most characteristic of the poems are love poems they express almost to perfection the real wonderland of youth but they do not express it by the ideal imagery of most poets of love the imagery of these poems consists if we may take a rapid survey of browning's love poetry of suburban streets straws garden rakes medicine bottles pianos window blinds burnt cork fashionable fur coats but in this new method he thoroughly expressed the true essential the insatiable realism of passion if any one wished to prove that browning was not as he is said to be the poet of thought but preeminently one of the poets of passion we could scarcely find a better evidence of this profoundly passionate element than browning's astonishing realism in love poetry there is nothing so fiercely realistic as sentiment and emotion thought and the intellect are content to accept abstractions summaries and generalizations they are content that ten acres of ground should be called for the sake of argument x and ten widows incomes called for the sake of argument y they are content that a thousand awful and mysterious disappearances from the visible universe should be summed up as the mortality of a district or that ten thousand intoxications of the soul should bear the general name of the instinct of sex rationalism can live upon air and signs and numbers but sentiment must have reality emotion demands the real fields the real widows homes the real corpse and the real women and therefore browning's love poetry is the finest love poetry in the world because it does not talk about raptures and ideals and gates of heaven but about window panes and gloves and garden walls it does not deal much with abstractions it is the truest of all love poetry because it does not speak much about love it awakens in every man the memories of that immortal instant when common and dead things had a meaning beyond the power of any dictionary to utter and a value beyond the power of any millionaire to compute he expresses the celestial time when a man does not think about heaven but about a parasol and therefore he is first and greatest of love poets and secondly the only optimistic philosopher except whitman the general accusation against browning in connection with his use of the grotesque comes in very definitely here for in using these homely and practical images these allusions bordering on what many would call the commonplace he was indeed true to the actual and abiding spirit of love in that delightful poem youth and art we have the singing girl saying to her old lover no harm it was not my fault if you never turned your eyes tail up as i shook upon e in alt or ran the chromatic scale up this is a great deal more like the real shaft that passes between those whose hearts are full of new hope or of old memory than half the great poems of the world browning never forgets the little details which to a man who has ever really lived may suddenly send an arrow through the heart take for example such a matter as dress as it is treated in a lover's quarrel see how she looks now dressed in a sledgling cap and vest tis a huge fur cloak 
like a reindeer's yoke, falls the lappet along the breast, sleeves for her arms to rest, or to hang as my love likes best. That would almost serve as an order to a dressmaker, and it is therefore poetry, or at least excellent poetry, of this order. So great a power have these dead things of taking hold upon the living spirit, that I question whether anyone could read through the catalogue of a miscellaneous auction sale without coming upon things which, if realized for a moment, would be near to the elemental tears. And if any of us, or all of us, are truly optimists, and believe, as Browning did, that existence has a value wholly inexpressible, we are most truly compelled to that sentiment, not by any argument or triumphant justification of the cosmos, but by a few of these momentary and immortal sights and sounds, a gesture, an old song, a portrait, a piano, an old door. End of section 6